that the perception is that if a group becomes so small due to killing and displacement that you can also remove its political rights. Whereas somebody else who did the killing gets greater political rights. Mm -hmm. It seems to be the reverse. Right. seems like you should lose your political rights through abuse and gain them through not having abused it yet. Hi, friends, and welcome to the Assyrian Podcast. This is episode number 33. One of the things I cherish about the Assyrian community is that there are so many hidden gems that the broader community isn't aware of. If you've studied Assyrians from an academic perspective or for research purposes, then you'll have come across today's guest. But if you haven't, then you've been missing out on this intellectual powerhouse. He's traveled, studied, and taught far and wide, but just to give you a quick snapshot, he graduated magna cum laude from Harvard Law School and was a visiting fellow at Oxford. He's published so many articles and books about the Assyrians, cyber law, intellectual property, antitrust, international and comparative law, and human rights. Hannibal Travis, a professor of law at Florida International University, joins us on the Assyrian Podcast, where Hannibal shares his passion for justice and talks about one of his recent books, Genocide, Ethno-Nationalism, and the United Nations Exploring the Causes of Mass Killing Since 1945. I'm so excited for you to meet Hannibal and hear this interview But first, please remember to subscribe and review the Assyrian Podcast wherever you listen to it. And share these episodes with your friends and your family. Show us some love by spreading the word about the Assyrian Podcast. www.assyrianpodcast.com will get you everywhere you want to go. We are on Spotify, iTunes, Google Store, and Stitcher. Now, a shout out to Tony Calgaracos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York for sponsoring this episode. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Calgaracos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. And now, here is Hannibal Travis. So thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm from Illinois originally, Springfield, uh, moved to the suburbs of Chicago and uh, went to college in St. Louis, Washington University in St. Louis and law school at Harvard, Cambridge, Massachusetts. And then I worked in law practice in New York and California for a while. And, And since 2005, I've been teaching at Florida International University College of Law in Miami, Florida, the public law school for Miami where my duties don't really involve Assyrian uh, or international issues uh, for the past few years, but uh, originally I taught international and comparative law uh, along with intellectual property and related courses. So the international law class gave me some chance to, um, you know, pursue my interest in in genocide studies, human rights studies, uh, international uh, precedents, uh, international treaties, and so forth. So I, uh, I taught that in 2007 and 2011. 
uh, but since then I've been mostly teaching in the in the more IP entertainment internet law side and not so much in the in the international law side. Uh, but I continue to be interested in this in this international law um, and the Syrian studies domain. Just to recap or to dive in a little bit deeper, right now your primary you're teaching about internet security, uh, intellectual property, internet law, entertainment law, antitrust law, and copyright law. All right, so you're the person to contact if we're going to be signing a contract having <laughs> anything digital related to it. One of the people. So. It seems like it's obviously something you have a passion for. I mean, you studied law at Harvard, which was not easy to do. What got you into that area? So when I was in college, I took a, a number of courses on um, philosophy of justice, psychology of justice, human rights, constitutional rights, equal rights, all this kind of thing. Then when I was in law school, uh, I worked on the Harvard Human Rights Journal. I took courses in human rights. I, I volunteered on human rights issues and um you know i was always interested in it and always interested in global affairs and uh having some kind of a voice and and contemporary controversies so when 2004 5 6 rolls around i have this uh exposure to international law and human rights i see the, the, the contemporary controversies and news about, uh, you know, a Syrian refugee flight and, and displacement and uh, calls for uh, indigenous rights and calls for local autonomy and calls for uh, maybe partition of Iraq or, or other remedies that would, that would improve the situation. Uh, so I start looking into things like, you know, the Iraqi constitution, and from there, I look into, you know, what was the situation that led to the creation of Iraq and, uh, and Turkey and the, the Ottoman Empire that fused both of them. What was the situation of human rights there? And the, uh, you know, the Assyrian genocide articles, you know, a lot of them by that time have been posted to Zinda magazine or Atwar.com or Assyrian International News Agency. All these old books have been scanned and posted you know, from Joseph Nyam or, or Abraham Yohanan or uh, they call it Animas, but it might have been the Marsha Moon. So there are all these books available that, that you can look into. And so I started looking into these books and, and write articles, basically. And as you were looking into those books and looking at what, what were the findings, like what was happening inside of you that charged you to want to keep pursuing it and writing about what you had found? I'd studied the United Nations and the European Union in undergraduate um, school and uh, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and other UN institutions in law school. And it seemed like that the United Nations and, and the European Union claimed to have an authority to promote human rights in other countries and uh, to intervene judicially or with some kind of an uh, order or, or statement um, requesting that uh, a group be given its rights or that an individual person be given some rights or that a, a situation be criminalized or the situation be remedied in some way. So I thought I would look at these precedents, particularly arising out of Bosnia and Herzegovina, Herzegovina and try to apply them to the situation of persecution and flight from Iraq because the situation in Bosnia had been one of uh, ethnic cleansing, refugee flight, posing a risk to other countries, 
uh, the United Nations declaring the situation a threat to international peace and security and establishing an international criminal tribunal to uh, punish and prevent further violations of, of human rights and, and the laws of war and, and the law of genocide. Uh, and I thought that, that given that similar situation and, and similar allegations, the, the rules and precedents could be deployed to similar effect in the situation of Iraq or, or other countries in the region. So you saw parallels and wanted to say, hey, if this is what's going on there, it should happen also here, and this is what worked and what didn't work. Sure. So a lot of my works are, have been about genocide recognition in the first place. Before, before a punishment or a remedy, there's just, just this question of how do we legally characterize something? And sometimes how you legally characterize something is very important because if a state does something that we legally declare that it has a right to do, there should be no change. Mm-hmm. They're just exercising their rights. This, doesn't that go back to like the Nuremberg trials where they, they were under orders to do something and so how guilty are they? Right. So there's a there were some critical points that changed the, the, the scope of international law. I mean, even in ancient times, there were there were notions of, of protecting diplomats and and peace treaties and this kind of thing. Uh, but it didn't necessarily evolve into punishing the the other side or or the or the king for for crimes until you know many hundreds of years later and and then you know after or or even in the late stages of World War II the Allied powers get together and say well we need to have a war crimes investigation over everything that's happened there had been a similar investigation after World War One. Uh, which had primarily been successfully carried out as to violations of the rights of prisoners of war, which were not necessarily thought of as crimes before that date. They were thought of as uh, like state-to-state agreements, like we'll protect your prisoners, you protect our prisoners, and we both won't kill each other's prisoners, so it'll be better for both of us. But there wasn't a court to say, if you, if you abuse the other side's prisoners, you're going to be imprisoned. Uh, after World War One, there were tribunals in uh, Leipzig and Istanbul uh, by basically allies or persons supported by the allies or brought somehow to power or sustained in power by the allies that said we can try things like abuse of British prisoners or um, massacres of the civilian population or plunders as some kind of crime uh, either under uh, local law or under these treaties about prisoners and so forth. So then after World War II, a lot of that stuff though failed uh, because the resources devoted were not that great. The, the, The preparation of the cases was somewhat lacking sometimes and the political will was weak because the war wasn't really over and there were things happening like the rise of Mustafa Kemal and the rise of the Bolsheviks and almost quasi-revolutions in the Allies. People were sick and tired of war. Uh, in, in 1945, all of the Allies were still quite vigorous and were not tired and the enemy had been completely vanquished in, in Germany uh, and... Uh, there was a notion that these, the, these, the war had been so large 
and such a, a, an avoidable repeat of a previous world war that they needed to spend more money and do a better job on the war crimes trial this time. So they had the Nuremberg trials and they they established these three types of crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity and and, and genocide and, and crimes against peace. Um, aggression, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. Genocide being one of the crimes against humanity. So then that provides a, a much... Uh, more doctrinally precise framework with which to analyze subsequent situations, which is the framework that I'm primarily dealing with. So you're going by the book and you're going in historical order and you're saying after the Second World War, they got more stringent with how they're going to perform these trials. They got more clear on what they were doing. And, and you're saying, look, that that's something we can use and we can compare it to what has happened to Assyrian people and how we want to manage those situations as well. Yes. However, there's a, there's a big caveat, which is that after 1946, they basically declared an end to these trials, like they had done enough, and they turned it over to nation states. And some nation states did more than others. Like Poland had, had verdicts about genocide against the Poles and the Jews in Poland. But Germany and Austria basically let everybody go after a few years. And then there was no permanent international criminal court to do this job anymore. So every subsequent war that happened um, until Bosnia, uh, with a couple of exceptions, was like Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Guatemala, no court, no almost no law. There were laws that the army could tell itself what its laws are, but nobody could nobody really punished anybody else in an international fashion in the same way. Then with Bosnia, they say, you know, the European Union, the United States say, well, the same thing is happening again on the European continent. This time is different. It's not like Vietnam far away from Europe. It's like Europe again. We have to do something. So they had this Bosnian tribunal. And then there was the Rwandan tribunal for Rwanda the, the, a couple of years after that started. So then we have the, the law of the international criminal tribunals, the prelude to the International Criminal Court. The International Criminal Court rules really try to summarize the laws of these other two tribunals with some other best practices and so forth. But the problem is that also is based upon consent, sending your own cases as a state to the court or the Security Council sending a case like Darfur, Sudan, which Sudan did not send itself to the court. So still, cases like Iraq and Syria fall through the cracks and Turkey and Pakistan mm. and many others. So yes, they did more at Nuremberg, but then there's this very large gap and lack of action. Yet that's what everyone thinks of. And, and unfortunately, it hasn't transferred throughout all the other situations that are just like that one. Sure. Is that accurate? Pretty much. Uh, Which is devastating. Yeah, but there is there are a number of cases you can cite where, where something was done even before Bosnia uh, at some kind of a national or diplomatic international level instead of an international criminal tribunal level. And then since Bosnia, there have been a, a large number of these things. Special Court for Sierra Leone, Special Tribunal for Lebanon... Uh, case of Darfur in the International Criminal Court, case of Libya in the International Criminal Court, Iraqi High Tribunal, um, proceedings in the UN to collect evidence about Syria, uh, private lawsuits about war crimes, you know, about Bosnia, but in New York, 
about Sudan, but in New York, about Indonesia or, or Papua New Guinea, but so in California. What? So there's a lot of stuff that I talk about, but it, it it's it's less well known and it's not a it's not a major event like Nuremberg. But one way or another, the injustice comes back to, to light and is somehow dealt with. Sure, yeah. The, the, some people would say it's not coming to back to life in the same way. There's a decline in the frequency and the severity of these things. You know, starting with, you could say, the Americas. You know, the Americas and the maybe the Monroe Doctrine. There's been very little state-to-state invasion and aggression in the Americas, you know, for the past hundred years. And then since 1945 in Europe, there's been very little. And then, you know, since 1991 in Eastern Europe, there was very little. Uh, and then in East Asia, it was stabilized. Um, you know, after, I guess, 1974, 1970, 1981, maybe. Um, so there's, this, there, there's a decrease in the, in the frequency of international wars. And then with the decrease in international wars, you see a decrease in the, in the state-to-state genocides that happen during war, like Germany and Poland and so forth. And so some people say there's been a decrease in the, in the level of these crimes and their frequency and that, that wars are becoming more humane. There's more precision weapons. There's more precise targeting. There's more avoidance of collateral damage. But, you know, there are other people who criticize that and they say that this is this all could be just a blip until World War III and nuclear weapons are used and then all the all their statistics will be just thrown in the trash uh, because everything will be destroyed. I don't know why I'm laughing, but that's just let's hope, you know, that we don't that's not a reality for us in any way, shape or form. Sure. But Hannibal, it's apparent and obvious when talking to you that from an early age, justice seems to have been a theme for you. Can you tell us like where that came from? You know, I think um, my father probably wanted to be a lawyer. He, he was uh, tried to be very fair and equitable in, in, in the home and in his, his work life, his career. So that probably something to do with it. And um, always interested in reading and, and reading about politics or, or novels about um, leaders making legal type decisions or political decisions. So I think probably something to do with it. Uh, and then the other things I've already mentioned. And you mentioned earlier that you teach about um, entertainment law. What does that mean? So there, you could say it's another type of justice. It's the justice of creativity and the justice of communication. Uh, so the justice of creativity is, you know, when person A creates a character or a book or a movie or software and person B imitates it, how much should B pay A? You know, and I've spent like almost 30 years looking at that question, maybe 25, of, uh, of adequate compensation and control over creative contributions, which is part of property law, we call it intellectual property. And there's also the law of communication, which is the law of cultural exchange, you know, the, the, the law of sending content across borders, the law of, of invading communications, privacy across borders, or the law of, uh, of war with communications uh, equipment, cyber war, or other kinds of, you know, non... That's been huge lately, right? Yeah. So some of this for you is coming full circle and this probably... the extent is way beyond anything you've ever seen before we've seen before with 
with the elections in the United States and all of that, and then now with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. Have you been following all that pretty closely? Not not necessarily. You know, the, the criminal violations of elections law is not necessarily my, my field. And s- some of the Cambridge Analytica material I've been following, uh, but, but I'm not exactly clear, like, what British laws that violated and stuff like that. So I wouldn't say I'm the, I'm the best person to talk about, about Cambridge Analytica. But in general, I do teach this law of, um, of express or implied consent to uh, sharing of, of internet histories and contacts. Uh, the, and it's often claimed in class action lawsuits against Facebook or Google that um, whatever they did was not allowed by their terms of service or that their terms of service are unreadable or were not required to be read or were not actually read or were obscure, therefore they do not govern the person and some statute governs them and I teach those statutes. So in one sense, yes, but in another sense, to the extent that it gets into election law, it's not necessarily, there's another set of specialists who deal with that. That's not necessarily your bread and butter. All right. And now I wanted to dive into your latest book. Tell us what it's about and when is it going to be available and where can we get it? So the book that I came here to talk about came out last year uh, from Rutledge or, or Taylor and Francis, and um, it's called the, the Assyrian Genocide, Cultural and Political Legacies. And a legacy is like a message or an, an emissary or ambassador from somebody else. Uh, so the legacies of the Assyrian Genocide are the the messages and the the uh the bequests to us from that time. So the first thing I do is I try to figure out who were the people of that time and what was the situation they're facing, what was the context of, of you know, the, the mass displacement and killing of Assyrians in Turabdin, Hakari, Urmia, and it, it possibly could have gone to Mosul, but it, it, it didn't so much because uh, there was a, a German uh, diplomat who opposed spreading it to Mosul uh, at that time. So I start with issues like that, like I explored in, in my chapter in the book, The Assyrian Heritage, uh, Threads of Continuity and Influence, about um, how ancient Assyrian culture transitioned into Christian Assyrian culture, you know, the, the conversion of populations from ancient polytheism or paganism to Christianity, and then the spread of these Christian uh, dioceses and, and bishoprics, uh, you know, throughout Mesopotamia and, and Anatolia and Persia, and then the the rise of conflict between the various empires: British Empire, Russian Empire, French Empire, Ottoman Empire, and how the dawn of World War One. This decision was reached. Officials uh, came to the conclusion that they had been stabbed in the back too many times by people like Bulgarians, Armenians, Greeks, and others who they suspected and in many cases were working with Russians or British or some coalition of that included Russia. So there was a phrase that the, the little Russia would be killed and then the big Russia or alongside the big Russia. So Armenia and Assyria were like the little Russia. Okay. And so it kind of started in this Ottoman-Persian border zone that was going to be a, uh, a flashpoint between Russia and uh, 
and the Ottomans. Northern Persia had already been a zone of contestation between the Ottomans and Persia before 1914. So these areas like um, Bashkala and Dizagavar were targeted. Um, then Murgavar, Turgavar, Dasht, as are mentioned. Uh, then it goes to Ermia, Hakari Mountains, Mardin, Turabdin, that whole area. Um, then there's discussions of Mosul, it's, it's countermanded, and um, there is kind of a, a lull in which there are more reports of starvation and, and refugees than of actual killings. And then in 1918, there's another spate of killings uh, with the collapse of the Russians and, and the flight of a large contingent from uh, the Urmia region, which half of which dies approximately. So I, I go through a, a lot of the documentary evidence from the Germans, from the Russians, from the English about that, from the Americans, from the Assyrians themselves. And I have chapters from other uh, scholars. Anhit Kosrova talks about Russian and Georgian files. Eden Nabi talks about memoirs and other files from Urmia region. Um, Stavros Devridis talks about uh, documents relating to Lady Surma de Beg Marshamun, the sister of the patriarch, and... Um, Hakari. Uh, there are also a chapter by uh, Seit Chitinoglu about uh, Turabdin and, and the resistance. Uh, so it's a bunch Iwardo. of different articles from different folks. A bunch okay. of chapters. And you. I wrote the introduction, the conclusion, and um, then there's the other people. And who it are sounds like speaking. you guys are going in depth about the in these different areas. Right. And it spans even from the 19th century until the. Really, the conclusion gets into the present day in 2015 and how an environment of, of uh, a lack of human rights, decentering or um, displacing displacement of Assyrians could have led to a condition of extreme vulnerability mm. where they don't have the, the compact defense forces that people were seeking in 1933 yeah. or in 1918 or in right. 1919 with right. the Paris Peace Conference, a chapter about Paris Peace Conference and how they were seeking a, a compact area that would be defensible like like other uh, states and communities I mean, in have, other words, even reservations. They were obliterated for all intents and purposes. I mean, even if you give people a certain amount of rights or whatever, it's sort of, uh, you're just protecting them until the inevitable happens. I wouldn't say it's inevitable. I do say that there are there are scholars who say that the, the question of an Assyrian nation is basically moot or a passe question. And that the... Uh, the, the question almost isn't even worth asking anymore because it's irrelevant to the, the real questions of, of, of Turkey, which is a binational state, and Iraq, which is a tri-national state, and Iran, which is a tri bi- or tri-national state, with, you know, Kurds, Turks, Kurds, Arabs, and Kurds, Persians, and maybe Arabs. That these, nation, um, these countries are made up of multiple nations. Not including the Assyrians, which are, are so small as to almost be irrelevant. They're called the dwindling... Population. It doesn't mean they don't exist, but it means that as a as a player on the world stage, as a as a as a point on the map, it's almost as if they they disappeared. Even though, of course, the, the communities survive and and um, make many important contributions wherever they are, and and you know, in diaspora they do various things, and and in their traditional lands they do various things. But um, do you think that's an injustice that they're being looked at this way? Well, it's injustice that it is this way. Number one, um, it's you could say it's a secondary injustice that the 
that the perception is that if a group becomes so small due to killing and displacement it. that you can also remove its political rights. Whereas somebody else who did the killing gets greater political rights. Mm-hmm. It seems to be the reverse. Right. Seems like you should lose your political rights through abuse and gain them through yeah. not having abused it yet. But instead it's the, it's the reverse where I talk about in the book how at the Paris Peace Conference and thereafter, the argument was sometimes used that the, the population was too small to justify a political organization or legal international recognition. Uh, but the reason why the population was so small in part is because I say that there there were so many killings and, 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 and deaths due to deportation. And part of that goes to the, the numerical debate is that a lot of scholars want to say, well, the number was originally so small that it never would have made a difference. And then, we, you know, I, I have various sources that uh, that are that are British estimates and so forth of that the number was originally quite um, you know substantial and that today it would be very large um, because you know for example you know 2.3 million Kurds in 1927 Turkey is today like 12 million Kurds in 2012 Turkey mean, yeah. so uh, it they increases had the to critical mass to eventually foster growth whereas the Assyrian people got crushed and basically have been fleeing and never were able to flourish the way other nations would be now now going to a different place with this do you think that the injustices Assyrians have experienced will somehow be redeemed I write in the book about how there's a trend towards greater remembrance. In the state of New York, Thea Halo, the author of the book, Not Even My Name, um, I think was active in persuading the governor, Pataki, and later the governor, Patterson, to recognize um, Assyrians and Greeks along with Armenians in, in a sort of annual pro- type proclamation. Um, subsequently, there were efforts in the state of California uh, the European Parliament in 2006 said that the uh, Assyrian and Greek experience was similar to that of the Armenian when they when they called it an Armenian genocide and then said Assyrians and Greeks were similarly situated. Um, Sweden had a, had a law uh, pass Parliament um, after that. Uh, part of Australia, um, the Russian Parliament passed something. Um, there's a couple of other examples um, not coming to mind, but so there is some some recognition there. Does it does it do anything? Um, I ch- I try to say in the concluding chapter that there is a way that uh, further genocides or crimes are prevented by remembering a past genocide. Because, for example, the UN uses a past genocide as a warning sign to recognize an ongoing genocide. So they're like on high alert in cases like Bosnia or Rwanda, and they're like ready to point the finger. But but first they have to acknowledge that one actually happened. Right. So the UN not having acknowledged the Assyrian one and having an ambiguous position about the Armenian mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. You know, they had a document in the 80s that was a kind of a recognition, but it was not really from the highest level. And then Turkey said it was withdrawn, even though I'm not sure that was accurate. So there's some ambiguity even about are the Armenians. Um, so the outcry that's happened from Assyrians because of what ISIS has done, that, look, there's a modern-day genocide happening right now. Would you say that's legitimate? I would say, um, 
I do say so. Uh, for example, I, I point to in the book in 2010, the Our Lady of Salvation Church mm -hmm. uh, massacre of 50 some Chaldeans, I think, as zero Chaldeans. In 1993, I point out, in, in Sarajevo, there was a mortar shell fell on a market and killed like 23 people. They called it the Markali Massacre. And people started to say there's a genocide in Bosnia because of that, 23. And there were still like a million, more than a million, maybe more than 2 million Bosnian Muslims at that time living in Bosnia. So every year after that happened, in, in the wintertime, the UN General Assembly passed a resolution that said ethnic cleansing in Bosnia is a genocide. Even though most Bosnian Muslims were still alive, there was a very large Bosnian Muslim army in the field and a variety of other reasons why you might question that. They still said it. Um, then in 1999, in Kosovo, the, the Serbs um, allegedly killed 44 Kosovar Albanian Muslims in place called Rachak or Rasak and the United States, Britain, NATO and Turkey all called that a genocide and used it to bomb the Kosovo Serbs and Serbia. Um, so under that the, the, the 2010 event is also a genocide there. Then there is a, there's a variety of other examples I talk about where there's there was like a pattern of incidents like in Iraq you have this pattern of church bombings and then you have the enslavement of women, uh, Christian women alongside Yazidi women. And then you have things like mass flight of 200,000 people from a, from a province. But or they a, don't ever officially get recognized as a genocide. Well, Secretary Kerry did include uh, Christians, I believe was his word, with Yazidis in the, in the 2016... But it was such a broad term, didn't identify the Assyrian people or the Chaldean, Assyrian Chaldean people. That may be true. I don't have the language in front okay. of me. Um, it, but it was interesting, the timing, you know, if you compare the timing of Kosovo and the timing of Bosnia to the timing of the Kerry Statement, uh, you know, they were talking about genocide the same year as the Markali mortar shell, the same month or, or the next month as the Ratsak shootings, but six years after the Baghdad church bombing and almost like a year and a half after the 2014 August famous events and Sinjar and, and Nineveh Plain and all that kind of stuff that um, that provoked President Obama to say there should be an intervention to prevent genocide and to save Erbil and all this kind of thing. Well, if you're listening to this podcast and you're eating this stuff up, then you're going to have to click on the link to get Hannibal's book because we're going to include the link in our show notes and... Um, and then if you ever want to reach out to Hannibal, we'll put his information in there too. And Hannibal, one of the things I like to do just in closing with anyone who's on the Assyrian podcast, I always like to end with, you know, if there's something you could say to Assyrians everywhere, what would you say? And here's your chance. I know that you're doing your best and I think that you will succeed. Love it, man. Short, sweet, to the point. Thank you so much for being on the Assyrian podcast. Check out the book. Tell us the title again. The Assyrian Genocide, Cultural and Political Legacies. Wow. And many chapters from so many different scholars. And you write the introduction and the conclusion. And we get to go deeper into things like the Paris Peace Treaty and how all this stuff influences and impacts us Assyrians. Correct. Thanks so much for your work and thanks for being here. Until next time.